Well, tonight we're, of course, going to continue our series on the Judges. We have pretty much finished up, although we're going to keep coming back to Moses, really, as an exemplar of the Judges, and that includes tonight. And uh, we're going to move on, though, and talk about Joshua and the uh, development and then the ministry of Joshua. We have, those kiddos want to head out? Okay. Give it up to mom and dad there. So we come to Joshua's ministry, and we recognize that the book of Joshua is not really where it begins. It really begins way back there in the book of Exodus, um, and with all of the events around the Exodus uh, from Egypt, um, we find him really coming to his own and being identified uh, when we get into the wilderness time, period, after crossing the Red Sea. Uh, he becomes Moses' second-hand man, and um, we're going to spend a little bit of time on that because I think it is an important element that was lost on many of the judges. Uh, and remember that as the judges were raised up, that as long as the judge was alive, Israel was doing fairly well. They had deliverance from their enemies. They had justice in the land. They, they were following, to some degree, the word of the Lord, the law, the covenant. Um, and uh, as soon as he passed on, uh, it just, all the sin just broke wide open again. And we have the mayhem of uh, them going after the Canaanite gods. We have injustice coming into the land. God bringing uh, harshness into their lives because of their rejection of the covenant agreement. Um, and the question keeps coming up, why the lapses? Why did the lapses occur? And we could easily go through the book of Judges, well, God, why did God allow that? Um, what we find is that we find very few of the judges taking responsibility for training up another judge in their place. Uh, that's not going to be the case with Moses. It's not really going to be the case with Joshua, although because it does state at the end of Joshua that there were judges in the land that he had appointed all over, but not a judge to rule the people. And, um, and so we find that... Uh, Perhaps the closest we get to are all the children of Gideon. Um, but again, they were, the sons were, were murdered by an illegitimate son. And, uh, but really, it wasn't built upon a biological heritage that you inherited the judgeship. Uh, obviously, Joshua is the son of none, so he wasn't anyone's son, right? Uh, that was a joke. Just relax. Um, he, was Joshua, he was not the son of Moses, and there was no lineage where Moses passed the mantle from him to his children. Rather, he um, identifies Joshua. Um, Joshua's taken under his arms. Uh, God identified Joshua very early on and said, hey, take Joshua up the mountain with you. Um, yes, take Aaron and, and these others, but make sure Joshua's with you. And Joshua's the one that stays up there uh, closest in proximity where Moses was getting the law, the first one that Moses encounters coming down out of that environment, which means something. It means that Joshua is seeing Moses at his brightest um, because whenever you come from the glory of God, you, Moses was reflecting that. So every time Moses comes down the mountain, you've got to imagine him being a little brighter, uh, which means whiter. His hair would turn white and uh, countenance was brighter. Um, it got to the point, remember, at one place that the people said, you've got to cover your head because you're just too bright for us to look at. Uh, they couldn't even look at the reflected glory of God off of Moses' face. And so he got that luminous um, in his countenance. 
But Joshua had that interaction. And uh, it was Joshua that was right there beside Moses all through this. And we're going to talk a little bit about the development of Joshua in that fashion. What he saw and what he learned. And we're going to find out that he learned a few things um, that he was careful to implement. One of them involved him. And it was a disaster for Israel 40 years earlier. So when Joshua gets ready to do some of the same uh, tools and same schemes, if you will, not the negative way, but the same, uh, implement some of the same strategy, maybe that's a better word to use, uh, that he takes some precautions to make sure that the bad things that happened 40 years earlier didn't happen this next time. And so Joshua is being trained and he is being groomed for this role. We're not going to see that in the book of Judges. We're not going to see one judge groom another judge. We will see it a little bit when we get into the prophets, the period of the prophets, to the point that we have a school of prophets being trained. We have, of course, Elijah and then Elisha, um, where the mantle is literally handed down. That's where we get the phrase, the mantle being passed on, is from that account where Elijah's mantle was left behind for Elisha to wear. And so we find uh, that there was lots of training and there was an aspect of, of uh, a heritage of prophets that would follow right one after another. Um, but per, during the period of Judges, we just don't see that. We don't see Gideon really training his replacement. We don't see Samson doing that at all either, of course. Uh, we just don't see it. We don't, we don't see that happening. And so there becomes these gaps. But in this very critical period in Israel's history, for the entry of the promised land, um, God had already prepared 40 years earlier. God was already starting to prepare a man for that job. Does that sound familiar? It should, because how long did God take to prepare Moses for his job? Yeah, he was 80 before he was ready to be used. 40 years of training there in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and now you're ready. At 80, I can use you now. Uh, you're ready. Um, I got to tell you, I'm... I'm not that old. Uh, I'm not 80. And I can't imagine that God had been working to prepare me for his assignment all this time. But he might be. So I don't know. I might be getting a big assignment call up here pretty soon to total shift into something. I don't know. But uh, always be ready. God's training you sometime to use you in his plan. And so at 80, he gets called. So Joshua's online, you might think, boy, you're the second-hand man for 40 years? Yeah, for 40 years. And he's in that wilderness with Moses, enduring all the things that they had to endure, watching all of his peers die except for one, and that would be Caleb. And we are going to take a little time to talk about Caleb in two or three weeks. And so we find um, that this began very early on. Joshua demonstrated that he was a man of faith, and a man that, uh, faith in God, and not in other things or himself, and God identifies him as someone, you take him up the mountain with you. You um, employ him as your uh, go-to man. Uh, Aaron is, of course, in charge of the priesthood, and so we recognize that Joshua's primary responsibilities would have been in ministering to Moses and administrating some of those actions of Moses that we read and some of the military action that Israel would have been involved in. He had some good training there, and we're going to see him using some of that. And so uh, we're going to find the development of a new judge under 
the other judge for 40 years. And this becomes uh, real important. How does God raise them up? And again, Joshua would have been an adult coming in, which means that he would be over what age in Hebrew reckoning that you're an adult at this point, a man of war? 20, yeah, he would have been in his 20s at least. Um, Caleb, of course, was 40. So um, that meant he was 80 when he said, I'll take that mountain with the giants. I want them. He's 80 years old, and he's ready to take on a mountain full. He says, I'm as strong as I was at 40. I can take those giants out that everybody was complaining about 40 years ago and says, oh, they're too big. Well, they're not too big then. They aren't too big now. I'm 80 years old. I'm taking them out. And so that's what he does at the end of the book, in the midst of the book of Joshua. He says, I want my mountain, and I'll take care of cleaning it out of giants. I'll take care of that. Uh, you don't have to worry about sending an army. I got me and the Lord. And uh, so he takes his family up there, and they do that, clean out the place, and uh, claims his inheritance. So Joshua would have been in his 20s at, to be counted as a man of war, uh, to be counted in that number. And, of course, we're really introduced to him more, most fully as one of the 12 spies that go up into the land uh, and comes back with the positive report. And immediately we were able to identify, here's two men of great faith, who see the challenges put before them and say, how can we lose? We got God. I mean, no giant of the land is comparable to him. Look what he did to Pharaoh. Uh, don't you remember? I mean, these guys are individually giants, but they have nothing compared to the military prowess of Pharaoh and the resources Pharaoh had available to him uh, of chariots and all of that. These are separate little uh, city-states and so each city had its own king. They were disjointed, which meant that they were easily taken one at a time. And uh, it wasn't like you're taking on the whole region and we're going to muster an army at once. Now, yes, during the book of Joshua, some of those guys got together every now and then, four or five here and three or four there, and tried to stop Israel, but failed every time by them. But initially, they start off with one city at a time. And by taking that out, they were taking out one king at a time. And so for Joshua and Caleb, they said, let's just take it. Uh, it's there. I mean, it's, all they saw was these giant clusters of grapes and the, the place is flowing with milk and honey. I said, well, you know, we, we, everything we plant grows there. Let's get up there and let's just uh, fill it up. And, of course, Israel rebels against that. So that's how it introduced really to the character and the nature of Joshua's spiritual condition, that he was a man who trusted in the Lord and wanted to do great things for God and was inhibited from doing that because of the majority. And remember, they took a vote. This is a very important occasion. And remember I told you what we have in the process of 40 years is Joshua being a learning machine so that he's in his 60s. He's going to live to what, 110, something like that, uh, somewhere in there. Um, he's going he's to live into his hundreds and rule over, uh, judge over Israel during that time. So uh, he's going to judge Israel for a lot of years. You figure 110, I'm pretty sure it's 110. That was just off the top of my head. I need to look at the end of the book of Joshua. It tells you how old he was when he died. Uh, yeah, he's 110. So uh, chapter 24, verse 29. Joshua died being 110 years old. So whether he was 80 years old when he started, which would have been about Caleb's age or a little younger, 
we have him ruling for 30, 40, even maybe as much as 50 years. He is judging Israel in every sense of the, of the word. So we find him engaged in this. And so all this time preparation, we have him um, watching and learning. Now, his first assignment that we find is buy out the land. So when we get ready to enter Canaan, what is the first thing Joshua seems to do as judge of Israel? They're on the east side of the Jordan River wanting to go to the west side where the promised land was. And they're still on the east side of the Jordan. And so we come to Joshua, and what's the first thing Joshua does? Well... We need to spy out the land. We need to find, we have to do what we did back then. But he's going to avoid the problem. What's the problem he avoids? Let's go to Joshua chapter 1 and 2. We get to 1 and 2. Joshua 1 is when the Lord gives him his assignment. um, But we want to press on. Uh, We're going to come to Joshua 1 more next week. Maybe a little bit tonight. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of the harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And that's all I want to read. Um, What do you do different? He only sent out two, and he did it secretly. Now you and I might look at that word secretly and say, Well, they're supposed to secretly sneak around in uh, the... Canaan and sneak around Jericho and be in secret. That's not really what the word secret applies to. It says that Joshua met these guys and secretly sent them without Israel knowing he did it. The idea is there wasn't going to be a popular vote at the end of this thing. They weren't going to bring back the spies and have them report publicly. In fact, when you get to the end of this, you're going to find that the spies come back and they report only to Joshua. This is a secret mission from Israel. Israel is not to know that Joshua did this. And so these spies go out, these two unnamed men, really, um, go out. They have the encounter there in Jericho. They hide in the hills for three days. They get back. They get across the Jordan River. They engage Joshua. And then Joshua goes to people and says, okay, let's start getting ready to follow the Ark of the Covenant across the river. I have the information I need. You don't get a vote. And he learned an important lesson. We're not going to do this publicly. We are not going to let Israel have a vote in this matter. We are going to follow the Lord. And that one change uh, just liberates Israel from the damage of weak, men of weak faith going in to spy. If the spies are weak in their faith and came back and says, oh, Well, I don't really care what your assessment of it is. I just need the facts of what we're facing when we cross the river. We are crossing the river. And that's the indication. Joshua wasn't asking them to give a report to the people of whether it's possible. He's asking them to bring a report of the condition that he's going to encounter when he goes across that river. And so we find that the first event that he was engaged in, that we find his first mission And he learns from all the disaster around. He says, I'm not going to do that again. We're not going to let these people give a report to all the people. We're going to let the spies give a report to the people. They report to me, and then I'll use the information to do what we need to do on the other side. Now, um, do they need the information right away? No. 
Because they're going to cross the river, and God says, uh, hold your brakes there a second. Um, and, and now you're going to have to do a job that isn't military, but it is very important as a judge of Israel. And you and I would have thought, well, it would have been more prudent to do this on the east side of the Jordan than the west side of the Jordan. But Joshua is still in a mode of discovery of what's important to God. But one thing he has learned in his internship for the last 40 years is when God tells you to do something, you do it. Without delay, without question, without complaint, you just do it. And so he gets on the other side and you think, well, we're ready to attack Jericho. We're going to formulate a military. Nope. God says, um, well, set up the rocks. We had the rocks crossing the Jordan River. And then I want you to go and make some special flint knives. Flint knives. And you're going to recircumcise Israel. Now, Joshua could have complained, but he doesn't. We have no statement of him saying, what are you thinking, Lord? We're in enemy territory now. We're right, I mean, Jericho is five, six miles away from the river crossing area. Um, we circumcise all our men of war. They're going to be incapacitated for, what, a week? They're not going to be able to defend themselves. But he does not question God. And this is the attribute of Joshua and Caleb as judges that, brings them up to Moses' level. And the God, remember in Moses, Joshua 1, God says to Moses, or God says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Only I require something of you. Be strong and courageous. Now what does that mean to you and I, be strong and courageous? Well, we think of those in military and physical terms. Um, I'm not sure that God meant that, although it was included in that. I think being strong and courageous was, are you going to be strong in the Lord? Are you going to be courageous on behalf of me? Are you going to do the things I tell you to do, even if they make absolutely no sense? And one of the first acts that God says, hold up, whoa, 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 stop your army right there. Um, gather them all together. None of these guys were circumcised while, for the last 40 years. So all of the men of war had to be circumcised because there was no circumcision going on in the wilderness wanderings. We don't really find that out until we get to Joshua. Why were they disobeying all that time? Why wasn't it happening on the eighth day? Because they were traveling so much. And so it was suspended until this day. And so they cross, and we find that all the men that were born during the wilderness wanderings of 40 years, so all the men between 20 and 40 had never been circumcised. Really, all the men 40 and under had never been circumcised. So they stop and they circumcise them all incapacitating them. If you want to know how incapacitating that is, remember Jacob's sons? There was a daughter that a Gentile wanted to take as wife and they were intense nearby and they said, oh, you have to circumcise all your males, then you can intermarry with us. And once they circumcise all their males, two men, two men walked into that town and slaughtered every man in that town. because they were all circumcised and couldn't defend themselves three days into the circumcision. That's how incapacitating it is. And so there Israel is, a few miles from Jericho, their first target, and they're all incapacitated physically. 
But these knives become very important. In fact, Israel saves these two, the, well, two, however many flint knives Joshua made. Um, they save them. And interestingly enough, um, they are the things that they bury with Joshua. Of all the things you bury with a strong military leader, the knives that he circumcised the children of Israel with, you saved those and you bury him, them with him as some great vener- act of veneration? Yes. Why? I believe that this first act was his greatest act of courage of everything he did. It was one of the first things he did when he crossed the Jordan River was to trust the Lord. It sounds ridiculous. It makes no sense. Militarily, it is a disaster waiting to happen. And yet God says, stop. You've crossed into Canaan. Now, a few things are going to happen. First of all, the man is going to disappear because you're going to eat the produce around you, all those giant grapes and, and clusters of grapes and all that. Um, they weren't giant grapes. They were clusters of grapes, giant clusters of grapes. Um, and you're going to circumcise all your men. And you're going to sit there for a week being totally at the mercy of God. That he will protect you when you are incapable of protecting yourself in enemy territory. This is one of the most powerful actions of Joshua as judge. Can you imagine all the people going, you're going to do what? Why didn't you do this over there where we have the Jordan River protecting us? This makes no sense. But this is where Joshua has already gotten their allegiance, remember? They have already sworn because God has appointed you, we'll follow you just like we follow Moses as long as you are strong and courageous. The same two descriptions. And whether they understood strong and courageous the way God understands strong and courageous, I don't know, but I know that they obeyed him. And they all lined up and they were all circumcised by Joshua. Now you gotta start thinking about that's a big job. I mean, he's got thousands of men to circumcise. I don't think he did it in an hour or two. Um, and those were the knives, every single one of them. Those were the knives. And they were the knives that exemplified what it means to be a godly, strong, and courageous man. So yes, he was a mighty man of war. Yes, he's going to prove himself to be of great valor, Um, He's going to have some great feats of strength. Um, One thing that Moses couldn't do, and he's going to do, in the battle of Ai, he's going to do what Moses needed help doing. Joshua's going to do on his own. And so we're going to have some of these things repetitive. And so Joshua has been trained and trained and trained and trained. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And he has stood there and, and stood outside the tent, stood at the mountain. He, he's, he's watched and observed. He's learned. He's grown. He has been strengthened in his faith. And now when the mantles come upon him, he is ready to walk out there. But he still says, I can't do it in my own strength. I have to have the Lord. And the Lord says, I'll be with you. You just be strong and courageous, which means trust the Lord. It doesn't mean, you know, go out there and lift, lift weights and take on bullies. Um, that's not what he's talking about. You and I might think that's what strong and courageous means, but that's not what God was saying. He says, trust me. And the greatest, I think, act of Joshua, of his strength and courage, 
was the first act after crossing the River Jordan. And it wasn't to destroy Jericho. It was, we're going to circumcise every one of our men of war and incapacitate them right here, spitting distance from our enemy. So that you know that the Lord didn't just dry up the Jordan River and let you cross over on dry ground, but you know that the Lord is your guard. He is your protector. He is the Lord. You are the Lord's army. And so it's no mistake, I don't think, um, that when we get to Joshua, that uh, we have the um, <clears throat> engagement of the second circumcision is there in chapter 5. If you, We're going to read that a little bit. What, how does God recognize this great act of judgeship? What happens at the end of chapter 5? Verse 13. What happens? You guys know? Let me read it. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, Are you for us or our adversaries? And so he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Wow. I believe this is God responding to Joshua's act of faith. You and obedience, faith, obedience. Those two words should just be glued together in your mind. Faith, obedience. Because you need one to have the other and you can't claim one without the other. Um, faith, obedience is, is this act of circumcision. God responds by doing for Joshua something that we really haven't, understood him do we we've had God speak to Joshua not appear to him and here is where he appears to him as commander of the Lord's army in full battle arrays is now you're ready to do some battle but you had to be tested in this area of your faith your strength of your faith and the courage of your faith do you have the courage to incapacitate yourself at the doorstep of your enemy if I tell you to do that and he passes. And so God comes and appears to him and says, now we can get to work. You have consecrated yourself. You have pure, you, they had to purify themselves before they crossed the Jordan. And this goes back to that whole role that the judge isn't just a military leader. He is an instructor, a teacher. Um, he is there to make sure there's justice in the land. We're going to see that. Um, he is there an ex, as an example um, and he is there to maintain Israel's commitment to God and to the covenant. And so Joshua becomes all of that again, and he's going to lead them spiritually into this act of identifying yourself uh, clearly that you are a child of the covenant. And what is the sign of the covenant? The sign of the covenant is circumcision. And so we are not going to go out as God's covenant people in battle without this done we're going to have to get it done and god wants it done and so we're going to do it why we didn't do it on the other side of the river because god didn't tell us to do it on the other side of the river he told us to do it here and it's the most courageous act you can do um, is to sit there and be that vulnerable that close to your enemy so 
This is some of what Joshua is ready to do. These are the extents of his faith built upon 40 years of wilderness watering, of seeing God provide food every day, water on demand, quail when you're tired of manna, um, when he's seen his peers drop like flies for the last 40 years, all of them dead. So there's no one alive anymore. Older than Joshua and Caleb. They've all died in the wilderness. He's watched them all perish because of a lack of faith. So when he hears God say, be strong and courageous, then I will bless you, we need to identify that with, I need to be a man of faith and obedience, no matter what. No matter whether it makes sense or not to me. And so God's going to call upon Joshua several times to do some things that might seem silly, um, that might uh, seem like, well, that's not going to work, but then some powerful things are going to happen through Joshua. But I think it is all built on those experiences. Remember, he walked across the Red Sea. Other people did too. They would have been under 20 because the only people that were, had to die in the wilderness were 20-year-olds and above. Wouldn't have been rough if that happened on your birthday and you just turned 20. I bet you somebody it was their birthday and they turned 20 that day and like, oh man, I don't get to go to the promised land because my birthday's today and not yesterday, you know, tomorrow. But um, everyone 20 and above was going to die in the wilderness. So all the 20 and belows are still alive. They're going to, they will have walked across. Those five-year-olds that, that uh, you know, said, oh, cool, hike, there's water there, water there. Um, they would have been alive. They would have been these men of war, 45 years old, ready to fight, Okay. And so we have all of this going on. Joshua's leading this, but he has been watching for 40 years God work both to, as judge of unrighteousness, of injustice, of the lapses of Israel, and he's also seen some of the mistakes of, jo of Moses. And Moses did make some. Um, one blaring mistake is when he hit the rock twice out of his anger. He just got so frustrated and angry, just whack, whack, and said, I got to get water from this rock. Instead of giving God the glory, he took it upon himself. And that's why Moses didn't get to go to the promised land. For that act of, of prideful frustration taken out on a rock with his stick that he stayed claimed that the water came out, sure enough, but the consequence was on Moses. So he saw all that. He was privy to all of this. I'm convinced of it. And so he has been nurtured and prepared and his faith is now mature. It was already there 40 years earlier. Now it's mature and there's nothing going to stop him. Does that mean he is going to be mistake proof? No. <laughs> He's going to mess up too. Uh, but his mess ups are a little bit different than Moses's. Uh, but he's still going to mess up and it's going to cost Israel a little bit here and there. Um, and uh, some of it's not his fault. Some of it is glaringly his fault. And we're going to see that with all the judges. They're not perfect men. In fact, some of them we might say, how can God possibly use that guy? Um, but they were set apart sufficient for his purposes. And where they had mistakes, they paid for it. They had consequences too. They weren't above that. They weren't above the covenant. They weren't above the law. Uh, Moses paid for that 
that blurt of anger. He paid for it. By, he got to see the promised land, but never go there. And so, uh, so is Joshua going to be dealing with that. And so um, we've come to this juncture, and we recognize that among the qualifications for judges, uh, they need to be men of faith. And we're going to question that sometimes. Um, we're going to see Gideon. We're going to say, well, Gideon didn't have much faith. I mean, he kept putting out those fleeces over and over again. You know, God, I'm not so sure you want me. I'm not sure that that's going to emulate his faith as much as um, where he was in terms of his self-evaluation. But uh, we're going to investigate that. But we find Joshua ready because of his training and because of his um, faith, obedience, to take on this role um, for a period of time at least as long as Moses is, I would say. I would say he's going to be doing this for at least 40 years. And victory after victory after victory after victory and God leading him all the way through it. Um, and where there is defeat, it is not because of God's failure, it's because of man's failure. And so that's the condition of the land under Joshua's judge. And we're going to find um, that he is going to fulfill the role of that um, peacekeeper for the people as well. The mediator role. That I am the go-between. And so the people are all uh, with him. They are for him. And on occasions he's going to have to address this um, Later on, uh, once the main battles are over, remember, there came a conflict. Two and a half tribes were sent back across the river with their families, the men of war. They were sent back to their inheritance because there was sufficient victory and, and the Canaanites were sufficiently, uh, uh, at least um, in the regions they needed to occupy at the time, were sufficient, sufficiently destroyed. And so they sent back the two and a half tribes worth of men of war. When they get over there, they go, wait a minute, you know, this river can be a real divisive thing. It could, people aren't crossing it all the time. They didn't have bridges like we have. Uh, people aren't always crossing this. There might be a forgetfulness that we belong to Israel because we're on this side of the river and they're on that side of the river. So they build an altar. They build a big altar on the side of the river, um, that, and the indication is it's something large enough that they could see it from the other side. So anyone traveling on could see that, oh, there's a big altar over there on the other side of the river. Well, who's building it? The, well, those two and a half tribes are building it. Well, it's misinterpreted by the people on the other side, and they're saying, oh, they're worshiping other gods. They're already building an altar to a false god. Let's go kill them all. And now Joshua's still alive. And so he's like, well, if that's the case, we do have to go and destroy them because they're breaking the covenant and it'll hurt all of us. Where do you learn that at AI? One man breaks the covenant. All Israel paid for it. So how is he going to let two and a half tribes break the covenant? No way. So he's prepared to do what's necessary, but he is still the judge. And so instead of attacking we find him engaging them and saying, what are you doing? 
Why would you do this wickedness in the land? And they go, what wickedness? We're not going to sacrifice on this thing. This is, no, 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 you've totally misconstrued this. They said, this is not for sacrifices. This is not for worship. This is a stone to remember. This is a reminder stone that we belong to Israel. So that it's not just that side of the Jordan belongs to Israel, but this side of the Jordan does too, that we are part of who you are. And if you think that wasn't important to do, when you read later on Israel's history, they had developed so distinctly that their, their language changed. Their dialects were a little bit different. Their Hebrew was a little bit different than the other people's Hebrew to the point that some of them couldn't pronounce certain words right. And that was the test of whether we were going to kill you or not. Can you say Mephibosheth? And they would say Mephibosheth. And they would pronounce it wrong because they had the southern drawl, you know. It's Mephibosheth. It's fur instead of four. Okay? They'd say it wrong. And they'd say, ah, you're not from here. And we're killing you. So the, the intent and the understanding, the wisdom there was true. You get a geographical border between you that doesn't get traversed very often, you can sometimes lose touch with each other. Um, they didn't have Skype or anything. Where's Scott? We didn't Skype him in tonight. Yeah, we didn't have Skype. We didn't have any of that. No phone. No, don't even have the Pony Express. Um, and so the geological thing, division is there, and their concern was genuine and real and was true. And so they wanted to set up a big monument there that was visible. So everyone traveling along over there would look over the river and say, oh yeah, there's some of us living over there. And we remember, oh yeah, there's still Israel over there too. That was all they wanted. But it was Joshua the judge that had to sit there and work that out because the ten and a half tribes were already wound up and they were just going to go slaughter them. But Joshua the judge is going to arbitrate this what's going on what is going you know how could you do this well do what what you're doing well what are we doing you think we're doing that no this is what we're doing and then everyone settled and it's resolved and this was the job of the judge and so Joshua's going to fill that role in place of Moses he still has judges under him that are handling small matters across the land but everything large is coming to him. And of course, when you got two and a half tribes involved, that's, pretty, that's about as big as it gets. And so he arbitrates that and resolves it, and it avoids war, and everybody's happy, and uh, they all go home to their tents. <laughs> I love that phrase in Scripture. I don't know. They all went home to their tents. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to go home to our tents. And, um, which basically means just get back to living. And you get all worked up over this. Just get back to life and relax a little bit. And so um, we're going to have him having to arbitrate, but then in the situation with Ai, with Achan's sin, who's the judge? Is there a jury? No. There's no jury. You answer to Joshua, and if Joshua says you're a dead man, you're a dead man. He's judge, jury, and in this case, um, he didn't have to be executioner because all Israel executed Achan. His responsibility was to arbitrate justice, not just lead military victories. That's coming. We're going to look more at that next week. But to arbitrate justice, to lead the people spiritually, to make sure that they, and so you're going to have his first command, 
Purify yourselves and get right across the Jordan River on dry ground. Follow the Ark of the Covenant. And then he does something unusual. He assigns Levites, the priests, to carry it instead of the Kohathites. And so he says, this is so special. I want you to see the priests carrying this rather than the Kohathite sect of the priests, the, the upper priestly level doing it. And they were allowed to do it. Um, and, uh, but uh, he, he's emphasizing that. So you have a spiritual leader. You have him exercising extraordinary faith obedience. You find him uh, arbitrating justice. Um, and you can't just think of Joshua as a military leader. Um, and we tend to do that because the whole book is about all their battles and Jericho, walls Jericho falling down and all that. He was there to lead Israel in all these ways. And so when we get to Ai, who does God, God says, what are, you, what are you groveling at me for? Get up and get over there and find the sin. That's the only reason you lost the battles because you sinned. And so it's up to Joshua to figure out who sinned. Now, there's your assignment. God says, someone sinned. Okay. They kept the accursed thing among their possessions. So he even told what the sin was. So now it's up to Joshua to find it. And he implements a full search and a full measure of how to find out who it is. And God's going to engage him with that. If you want to be obedient, God is going to be with you to judge and arbitrate these. And again, what's his response to um, Achan? Confess. Give glory to God and confess. Um, don't hide this. You've hidden it this whole time. Can you imagine you're Achan and you don't? Your, your country has lost a battle because of one man's sin. They tell you what the sin is and you're sitting there in the crowd. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I'm safe because nobody knows. And he doesn't confess. He doesn't volunteer. They pick his tribe. He still feels secure enough to say nobody knows. They pick his clan. He still doesn't confess, volunteer. They pick his family, his father. He still doesn't. Finally, it falls on him, and they go search his tent. And he's still not admitting it. Sound familiar? Criminals don't do that anymore, do they? Nah, they just confess right away. I mean, they still declare their innocence. And finally, Joshua says, well, you just give glory to God and stop hiding the fact that you did this. And finally, with all the evidence in front of him, Achan finally says, yeah, I did it. I say, oh, well, confession, that's how you get forgiveness. No. Repentance is how you get forgiveness. And his hiding it this long is just how deeply he was hiding it. Even to the point that when he was fingered, <laughs> the evidence was there, he was still hiding it until Joshua says, do not hide it anymore. Tell what you've done. And so he tells. And uh, here's the, they run to the tent, they get the stuff. Um, he's been fingered by God, essentially, <laughs> And he finally confesses, here comes the materials, here comes the silver and gold. They have all the evidence they need, but here comes the accursed things. And they have to put him to death. That's what it means to be accursed. Um, there's a little difference between the Septuagint and the 
New King James, the Masoretic, in this regard. Um, in the Masoretic text, they kill his whole family. Um, in the Septuagint, we find that only Achan is killed. His family um, is uh, somewhat uh, cursed but not killed. Um, and so it, it, they only stoned him, and he was the one, not them. And so you'll find that in, a little bit different in the Septuagint. And, and uh, it always kind of disturbed me. Well, if no one knew about it, neither did his wife or kids. Um, but um, sometimes the children have to pay for the sins of the parents. Uh, it's always been the, the uh, example of that. But here we have um, him arbitrating justice. This has to be just. has to be done right. And that falls on the judge. So he's got all of this to, to address and to deal with. And I want you to just see Joshua as, as a prepared leader with great wisdom and faith obedience, um, plugged into a really difficult role. Um, but God is with him, but he's doing all the same jobs that Moses was doing. Uh, there's one more job that I didn't get to. My time is up, but let me just, maybe I'll spend a little more time on it next week. One of the other jobs that Joshua did that was the same as Moses, and he had to have seen Moses do this many times, one of the jobs Joshua did was he sat down and he copied the law. Everything Moses taught, he copied on stone in the sight of Israel. Again, not a job you do in an hour or two. <laughs> okay? Everything Moses taught, everything in the law, he copied and one of the primary things we're going to find about judges and uh, the good, the, this Joshua and then the prophets later on is how they keep calling people back to the law. Well, how did Joshua do that? Well, Moses was always writing, so I guess I should be doing it. And he didn't produce his own writing. He simply copied it and made sure Israel always had copies of the law. You should be doing this every generation, copying the law. And he sat down, and in the sight of Israel, it says he copied the law out for them on stone. And so um, he understood his role, that it wasn't this military, it wasn't a political leadership. This was in a theocracy. You can't divorce all those departments. They all fall into one person. And we find him exercising that um, in an extraordinary example, I think, of faith obedience in Joshua, comparable to Moses, certainly. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for these great examples. And Lord, we look at our church and we think of it as a theocracy where you are the Lord, the King. Um, and we recognize that Christ is our the King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, and we know that you by your spirit lead in our lives and our hearts. And, and we thank you for these examples of how that happens through your word and through our faith obedient response to your word. And Lord, we also know that like these men of old, we have our failures too. And also necessity to learn from mistakes of others, from the mistakes of previous generations and to strive to keep from making those same mistakes. So Lord, give us that kind of wisdom, wisdom that we see personified there in Joshua, 
that we would um, learn and that we would guard ourselves from faithlessness and from disobedience and from uh, the uh, traps that are around us in this world, that we might walk in obedience within our covenant with you, that we might enjoy your blessing um, and all that you have in store for us in your presence. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.